Welcome back. Today on the podcast, we're going to be talking about salamanders. Strange salamanders. They're all female. They can reproduce on their own, so they're parthenogens. But they developed a really nifty trick of stealing DNA from species in their environment. So today on the podcast, what's a species? We're going to talk salamanders. My name is Katie Greenwald, and I'm a professor of biology at Eastern Michigan University. I'm here to ask you about salamanders, and I like salamanders. I look under logs with my kids all the time and collect them, but your salamanders caught my attention. What do they look like? How do you find them, and why are they weird? A lot of people will think they look like lizards, sort of a long, skinny body with four legs and a long tail. Salamanders, though, are amphibians, so they don't have scales. They instead just have skin, which is typically sort of moist. They have these glands that will produce mucus. A number of species have glands that will produce some different types of toxins. So they just have, they're kind of like damp lizards. They are in the genus Ambystema, which are commonly known as the mole salamanders. They spend a lot of time in burrows. You can really only find large numbers of them during their breeding season, which in our area is typically mid to late March. And they all come and they breed in ponds in forested areas. They have a larval stage, just like a frog. So there's an aquatic juvenile stage, after which they undergo a metamorphosis and leave the ponds and go back to the terrestrial ecosystem where they are mostly underground or under logs or rocks. The salamanders that my lab works on are known as unisexual salamanders because they are all female. Have they always been that way? How far back does female unisexuality in these salamanders go? That is a great question. Our Best evidence suggests that this group has been around for about 5 million years, which is actually the oldest known unisexual lineage in vertebrates. Unisexual or asexual vertebrates are pretty evolutionarily rare and fairly typically short-lived in the evolutionary record. So these groups will pop up from sexual ancestors and maybe only last on the order of hundreds of thousands of years. So having a 5 million year old unisexual lineage floating around is actually a really evolutionarily interesting thing. And it's probably due to the unusual way that they reproduce. So we tend to argue that sex exists to help rescue genetic diversity and that there's so few things that are truly asexual. There's advantages in some of those groups like niche invasion, but at the same time, they lack the replacement genetic diversity. So are these unusually genetically diverse or under diverse or describe them genetically? They are as genetically diverse as the sexual taxa that they coexist with. And that is because they are actually breeding with males of other species. So as I mentioned, they breed in wetlands. And in those wetlands, there will be more typically reproducing sexual ambistomatids, so species in the same genus that are diploid, that have both males and females and reproduce in a way that's pretty typical for vertebrates. And these unisexual females will breed with the males of these other species. There are actually five different species that they are known to do this with. So they will pick up their male spermatophore. And that act will just trigger development of the female's eggs without incorporation of the male's DNA. So she will produce eggs, those eggs will hatch, and those offspring will just have the same set of genomes as, as mom. But some smaller proportion of the time, 
the male DNA is incorporated. And when that happens, we most often see it as what we'll call ploidy elevation. So if mom had two sets of chromosomes, the offspring may have three sets if the paternal DNA is added to that developing um, embryo. So that makes them actually very genetically diverse because they can actually have anywhere from two to five sets of chromosomes from any of these five sexually reproducing species that they reproduce with. In some parts of their range, you might find an individual that has three complete genomes from three entirely separate species. (laughs) They are not actually fully asexual. And so that probably saves them from a lot of the issues that truly asexual attacks are run into. That's amazing. So one of the problems with hybrids is often that when you get these unusual sets of chromosomes, you get really strange sex cells, gametes that are unstable because they've got the wrong sets of chromosomes. How do they get around that problem? That is a wonderful question. And we don't know just a whole lot about, you know, the cell biology, right? What's going on with developmental issues? We do know that if you have a site, a pond, with lots of these unisexual salamanders, you tend to find really high numbers of eggs that just fail to develop. And that's very likely due to the issues that you're referencing, right? That there are, are just chromosomes that aren't playing well with each other and aren't, aren't allowing for successful development in those offspring. Okay, so you could have a salamander that is a parthenogen, just like it, it's been produced just like its mother, or the mother is producing identical offspring. You could have a salamander that has three different genomes derived from three different cohabiting salamander species. You could have them as diploids, triploids, even more ploidy levels. And yet they're all either one species of of all-female salamander and a bunch of neighboring species. This suggests that the barriers here are very unusual. The reason that we know it's all one lineage is that the salamanders and and us, (laughs) we have both mitochondrial and nuclear DNA. And mitochondrial DNA is maternally inherited. And because they're all, all female, we can use the mitochondrial DNA to determine that they're all one lineage. They're all very close relatives. They all have very similar mitochondrial haplotypes. Uh, with some variation, of course, it's been 5 million years and there's been (laughs) diversification, but they're very different than the mitochondrial genes that we see in the related species. So we can use that to conclude that, that this is one discrete lineage. But if we look at the nuclear DNA, that's what's being swapped in and out potentially every generation with whatever sexual taxa they are reproducing with. And the species that are in the mix really just depend on where you are in the range. Depending on what species they overlap with, that will determine the males they have access to and therefore what genomes are in the mix. So our unisexuals here in Michigan look a lot like blue-spotted salamanders, but when you get down into Ohio and Indiana, for example, you start to have populations that are overlapping with Jefferson salamanders, with smallmouth salamanders, and those genomes start to come into play as well. So they look really different in different parts of the range because they are stealing and then expressing genomes from these fairly diverse species of ambistomatids. Would it be accurate to call this a sort of clinal variation where the cline is actually your access to another species of salamander? 
It would be, yes. We actually did a project in Ohio looking at niche modeling, using a niche modeling approach to see where we were finding the unisexual biotypes. Biotypes is what we call the the genome combination. So here, for example, most of our unisexuals are LLJ, which is two Ambistema laterali, the blue spotted, and one Jefferson's Ambistema jeffersonianum. So that's mostly what we have here. In Ohio, you get LJJs, which are more Jefferson's. You get LTTs, which are more Texanum or smallmouth salamander. I, I love how you say ours are mostly blue spotted salamanders. You describe <laughs> <laughs> Right. So they, you know, like I said, they all have at least one blue spotted genome across the whole range. That's fascinating. That seems to be one rule. And the other rule is that they have at least something else. So we've never found one that's just LLL, say, three blue spotted genomes. They need to have an L, a laterality or blue spotted genome, but then there needs to be something else as well. So ours here, even though they're only breeding with blue spotted, they still have a Jefferson's genome that they presumably brought with them as they moved north following glacial retreat. And so they're still hanging out with this Jefferson's genome that makes them a little bit bigger on average than our full blue spotted salamanders. What we found was that you do actually see the unisexual sort of existing in an ecological space that's intermediate between the sexual taxa that they have from whom they have their genomes. So LJJs are using slightly different types of habitats that have slightly different um, climatic and and weather covariates than, than the full Jefferson salamanders do, for example. And so yours is called which the 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 asexual is which one? That's the what do you mean? You, the, there's the blue spot and the Jefferson and the, the what's they don't the have actual, a name. We don't. They don't have a name. Oh, okay. <laughs> they're just really the asexual so complex, or the people will call them the blue spotted complex or the Jefferson's complex, depending on where you are. But most typically, I just call them the unisexual complex because they don't have species status. Okay, so their ecology actually reflects the unique combinations of genomes that they inhabit, and they can be intermediate between the two parental genome sources, if that makes sense. It does seem to be that way, but it's interesting on a large scale like that, because of course, they're also constrained to only existing where they can access males and use those males for reproduction. And so the idea is that as they move kind of outside the range, say, of the Jefferson salamander, if they would move into the range of the blue spotted, they would eventually start incorporating more blue spotted and come to kind of match more closely the the blue spotted phenotype and, and ecological niche. So when you say they have to use males, there is, of course, this sort of theft of some of the genome from the male. But what else are they using? You said sometimes they can just reproduce as long as they have been in contact with a male. What are they doing there? Different species have different courtship routines, different behaviors that they go through during breeding. It's actually unclear whether the unisexuals are, in fact, going through all of those same courtship routines with the males, or whether they may just be making use of extra spermatophores that are produced. This mode of reproduction has been termed kleptogenesis. People thought they were typical hybrids, that you could have a blue spotted and a Jefferson salamander reproduce with each other and produce these these hybrid, right? Because they look intermediate between those species. So it was understandable that they were assumed to be hybrids 
is. And that never happens in the wild. We never see any of these sexual species crossing with each other. The unisexuals are just there being this really weird, (laughs) unusual entity grabbing genomes from both sides. Okay, so they were originally thought to be hybrids because they look intermediate, but a hybrid suggests an equal mixing of genomes in both directions. And this is very, very asymmetric. So one lineage is stealing chromosomes from another lineage. How is How does sex determination work? So in mammals, we think about the male's contribution dictating whether it's a male or a female because we're used to the XY system. And females are XX and males are XY. But I know that's not true of almost the majority of, t- of species. What is it in these that they can all be female if they're stealing male components? You have a lot of very good questions. I'm trying not to say we don't know to every one of your questions. That's okay. (laughs) What what we do know is that there's some work in tiger salamanders. They do appear to have chromosomal sex determination, but with a ZW system. So in that case, then the females would be heterogametic. The males would be homogametic, ZZ. That doesn't make sense with these unisexuals because in that case, half of the offspring of the unisexual female should be male and half should be female. So we don't know in this complex what is happening. It probably has to do with gene expression. So it's a reverse system like birds or lots of the butterflies where females are actually the one that has two different sex chromosomes. So whatever they would steal from the male shouldn't affect their own um, offspring's sex. But the weird thing is that the the offspring should be inheriting a, a mixed chromosome set sometimes that encourages them to be male. But it also makes a certain amount of sense because one of the problems with polyploids is dosage. If you've got too many chromosomes, you've got too much gene expression, but if they can downregulate everything, then maybe they're downregulating the effectively male chromosome at the same time. Um, but yes, even when they don't incorporate the male's genomes, they should, in theory, be producing a 50-50 sex ratio because of the females being heterogametic. That's definitely not what we see. We do very occasionally turn up a quote-unquote male unisexual. These will be cases where we we phenotypically identify them, morphologically identify them as male. But then when we genotype them, we find that they are triploid, say. Um, and so that does happen here and there, uh, but we don't know if those are fertile individuals, if they're actually able to produce you know, viable spermatophores. They're so rare that we know very little about what's actually going on with them. So, so males are known, but incredibly rare. And they may be infertile, an unusual number of chromosomes, again, so that the idea of a down regulation that hasn't quite been successful might be at play. So they've, so they've not only modified their way of reproduction, and they are capable of stealing genomes from neighboring species to incorporate weirdly successfully into their progeny. They can also suppress the male chromosome to ensure that everybody's female and persists in this same lineage. That's fascinating. So it's not segregation distortion. You're not actually preventing the transmission of the male chromosome. It's actually a regulatory component. Right. Yes, because the the genomes are passed down intact. So they're all in there (laughs) as far as what's being expressed from those genomes is, I think, a really interesting question with this group. The males produce a spermatophore. The females pick it up in their cloaca. So following these sort of courtship rituals, typically the courtship will end with 
some stage where the females are kind of following behind the male and he is producing these spermatophores, which will be just stuck on leaf litter and sticks and other things on the bottom of the pond. This is all happening underwater. And then the female will walk over those, pick them up in her cloaca and there's internal fertilization. So they will um, then just produce the eggs, typically that same day. And, and then the parents leave and there's no further interaction or parental care. So we've got an all-female species with these incredibly rare males, but they need a male to get the either the chemical or genetic stimulation to actually reproduce properly. They borrow from other species. They can become triploids or multi-polyploids and yet all female by suppressing a male chromosome. This is great. So so there there, there is no such thing as a pure breeding version of this. They all contain the genome of something else. And the thing that unites them as a lineage is the fact that they contain other lineages. Yes, they have, like I said, their own discrete mitochondrial DNA, but none of the nuclear DNA is theirs, quote unquote, right? Their entire nuclear complement of chromosomes is swiped from other species. And one little tidbit that I don't think I mentioned is that they're actually the majority are triploid. So I think I said they do range from two to five N. We typically have only ever seen pentaploids as larvae. So they don't tend to survive metamorphosis. That's probably just too many chromosomes. <laughs> the adults, though, uh, at our field sites are most commonly about 90% of them are triploid. And the remaining 10% or so are tetraploid. So, and triploid appears to be the most common state across the whole range. So if you're where there are a lot of blue spotteds, you're mostly getting LLJs. If you're where there are a lot of Jeffersons, you're mostly getting LJJs and so on. But the triploids, for whatever reason, appear to work really well, which is another strange thing about this group that, again, relates to gene expression and, and so on. It would seem that a diploid or tetraploid state would be easier, quote unquote, to deal with as far as meiosis and so on. But the triploids are by far more abundant. So most students who come into my first year biology class or even my upper year biology classes and probably yours as well, if you ask them what a species is, they're going to give you Ernest Mayer's biological species definition. And a species is a group of interbreeding things that cannot breed with things outside of their group. Clearly, that doesn't apply here. The biological species concept has just gone out the window. What is your definition of a species? That is, so the biological species concept works in certain cases. Um, You know, coming from a background where I do more work with, uh, on on the molecular side of things with this group, um, looking at differences, genetic differences, Differences, I think, can be useful, obviously, in species delineation, although there are fuzzy lines there as well. So I don't have a good offhand definition. I think I spend too much time thinking about this very weird group to feel like I can, I can say with any confidence what a species is. Well, that's great. I teach my students and I can't say it with confidence either. <laughs> and I'm a mammologist. <laughs> um, what does it teach us about 
isolating mechanisms then? I mean, that seems to be the major issue here, that the biological species concept takes reproductive isolation to be key. And it simply can't apply in a scenario like this. So what have you learned about isolating mechanisms? Right. And what's really interesting is that even if you think about something like the biological species concept, it works really well for the sexual taxa involved in this lineage. So we have these five really well-supported genetic clades, genetic species. None of them are known to reproduce with one another in the wild. There are differences in terms of their ecological niches and so on. Those entities are things we probably feel really comfortable saying are species using any number of species definitions. But the unisexual sort of then exist in this space between those well-established species where they are pulling genomes from one or another into their lineage, but not actually causing any gene flow from one species to another or any sort of collapse of those established species entities. So I think of them as sort of existing outside of species concepts. There are systems, there are species that are well-defined and easy for us to understand as humans. We like to categorize things. We like to understand things in a neat and tidy way. But I think it's one of the really fun and beautiful things about this group is that they just don't let us do that. There is a space for something to exist in between what we like to call species. And that's one of the coolest things about them. So the question I always ask everybody, because the people that I've interviewed doing this have these very strange systems they work on. <laughs> did you set out to be an asexual salamander specialist or how did you end up where you are now? Did you go straight? Did you always want to be a faculty member and teach university? Or is this a accidental trip into some salamanders one day and found a career? <laughs> <laughs> I did not intend to work on this group from the get-go. I I actually, if we want to go way back, thought I'd go to vet school. Like, you know, I was a kid that grew up and loved animals and was always, I was always out catching snakes and frogs and things. And I think when you're a kid that loves animals, people just say, oh, you should be a vet. You know, it's the career that people are most familiar with. So that was really my plan almost all the way through college. And then I did an undergrad research project, very unrelated to what I do now. It was actually a behavioral study of a captive polar bear cub. So I was looking at kind of the developmental behavior in this. It was, I always say the world's cutest honors thesis, <laughs> this little polar bear that I got to watch for months on end. But I loved that process. Yeah, I loved collecting the data and analyzing it. And I wrote it up for publication. And that really got me thinking about grad school as a possibility. But I went into grad school then interested in behavior, behavioral ecology, but I've always had a really strong interest in conservation as well. And so my initial thinking about grad school projects is that I would look at how things like habitat fragmentation impact behaviors like dispersal and migration. And so I started working with amphibians, thinking about amphibians, because they're very susceptible to fragmentation. They don't tend to move very far or very well. They are really vulnerable to desiccation and agricultural chemicals and all sorts of other things. Actually, so I went to Ohio State and I was going to work with Jefferson salamanders. Dear mentor Ralph Fingston, who wrote the Salamanders of Ohio book, told me, 
that I shouldn't work with Jefferson salamanders. He said, if you work with Jefferson salamanders, you're going to go out and you're going to get your samples. Then they're going to turn out to not be Jefferson salamanders. They're going to be these weird hybrids. (laughs) He talked me out of that species because he knew there was something weird going on with Jefferson salamanders in Ohio. So I ended up doing my grad work with marbled salamanders, which are in the same genus, but breed in the fall. So they're not involved in this complex because they have this temporal separation with their breeding season. And I ended up doing a bunch of genetics work with them. Ralph's um, warning, I guess, (laughs) just sort of stayed in my mind. And I just stayed curious about what was going on with those weird Jefferson salamanders that weren't really Jefferson salamanders. (laughs) As I was getting close to finishing grad school, I heard a talk that Jim Bogart gave. He came down and gave a seminar. It just, I, it just amazed me. Just, I couldn't stop thinking about what, what was going on with this weird group of salamanders. (laughs) And so I ended up sort of getting into working on them as a postdoc and beyond. Well, there you have it the strange world of ambistoma salamanders, and how they just defy everything we know about species concepts. Strange mating system, indeed. Thanks this week to Dr. Katie Greenwald for her assistance on the podcast, and we hope you'll join us in the next episode. Thanks for listening to the BioAudio podcast. The BioAudio project was started to provide a free alternative to textbooks for students and educators to provide a more inclusive resource and one we can add new topics to at any time and modify. If you are a student and you have enjoyed this episode, send me a note on Twitter at Dr. underscore Bat underscore Girl or on Mastodon at Professor Bat Girl at ecoevo.social and follow me to hear when new episodes are posted. If you are a university educator and would like to use this content, please feel free and let me know you're making use of it. Ask your students to follow the podcast. If you'd like to suggest a new episode, and better yet, help make it, send a message on Twitter, Mastodon, or to bioaudio1 at gmail.com. I'm happy to make new content to fit other courses, and I'll prioritize a topic if you can help me record it.